Welcome to the Elk Talk Podcast with Randy Newberg and Corey Jacobson. Presented by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. The goal is what little you and I know about elk hunting, we share with people. I've got an elk building, it's like 120 yards away, what do I do? First off, the thought would never cross my mind when an elk being 120 yards away to call anybody on a cell phone. <laughs> All elk. All the time. Only elk. Only elk. Well, it's us having conversations. So we usually go down some rabbit holes. But if you hunt with Corey Jacobson, you will find the landscape is full of rabbit holes. We're just going to make this up as we go. And you look at it like, oh, that's a target-rich environment. But if you're trying to single one out, a solo target there is much easier to go into than a, a big group. Well, we record everything, so there's no BS and no lying, no faking it with us. <laughs> Did we hit the record I button? I forgot to hit the record <laughs> button. If you want to know something about elk hunting, this probably isn't a podcast to listen to. <laughs> Should we give them a list of all the other podcasts well. where they might learn something? <laughs> The Elk Talk Podcast is brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, ensuring the future of elk, other wildlife, their habitat, and our hunting heritage. To become a member, go to rmef.org. The Elk Talk Podcast is also brought to you by Mountain Ops, making outdoor energy and performance nutrition to make you a stronger and healthier elk hunter. They have a full line of hunting-related supplements, including meal replacement shakes, multivitamins, pre-workout fuel, and post-workout recovery, and my favorite, their new performance protein bars that, by the way, are packed with 270 calories and 20 grams of protein, but contain less than 6 grams of sugar. Visit mountainops.com to learn more and to order, and be sure to use the promo code ELKTALK to save on your next order. The podcast is also brought to you by Gerber. Uh, go to gerbergear.com and learn about the knives, the vital, the big game vital, the Gator Premium, all the things that we use when we're out in the woods, and not just knives, but also some really cool multi-tools that they have. And we have a promo code for Gerber as well. Just use the code ELKTALK to save 20% on your orders at gerbergear.com. And we are also brought to you by Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. And Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls is the original designer and inventor of the pallet plate diaphragm that's completely changed the way elk calls are made and used. And to find out more and to order your elk calls, go to RockyMountainHuntingCalls.com or BuglingBull.com and use promo code ELKTALK and you're going to save 15% on all of your elk calls and elk call accessories. The Elk Talk Podcast is also brought to you by GoHunt.com. Uh, go to GoHunt.com and sign up for the Insider. The Insider is changing how hunts and hunting information are found. No doubt about that. Use promo code ELKTALK, and when you do, when you sign up for the Insider, you're going to get $50 of store credit, mad money, in their gear shop. Lastly, the University of Elk Hunting online course is a proud partner of the Elk Talk podcast. And within the University of Elk Hunting online course, you're going to find nearly 60 chapters organized in 17 modules of elk hunting instruction aimed at making you a more successful elk hunter. From planning and e-scouting to calling strategies and packing, 
Every imaginable elk hunting topic is included in the online course. And regardless of your previous elk hunting experience or success, I'm confident the University of Elk Hunting online course will make you a more confident, more successful elk hunter. Just visit elk101.com and use the promo code ELKTALK to save 20% when you sign up for a membership to the University of Elk Hunting online course. And with that, Corey, we are ready to get into it. Let's jump into it. Corey Jacobson, how are you doing today? <laughs> I am as good as ever. Really? Man, yeah. I love that. that yeah. That's uh, You're so far in front of everybody that we thought that we were winning the race and you're just coming around the track a second time and you're about ready to lap the rest of the crowd. <laughs> we're, we're really not ahead of you. We're, we're like seven-eighths of a lap behind you, it sounds like. <laughs> if I was any better, there would need to be two of me. Holy cow. Man, I thought you know. I one guy I used to work with would say, "Man, if I if I need, was going to be any better, I'd have to be you." I thought that's what you're going to say. I'd be like, wait a second, <laughs> you, you haven't looked at the size of my waistline lately. <laughs> uh, we haven't even hit the holidays yet. I know we're but, in trouble. Uh, I, I'm in I'm in a bad way this hunting season. You know, last podcast we talked about I'm dealing with my mom's health issues. Well, four out of the last five weeks I've been back here in Minnesota where I am right now. And I can go for a hike for an hour, hour and a half like I do in between her treatments. But there's no inclines. Any place you go off asphalt or off concrete is mostly just a swamp. It's, it's like, if I lived here, there's no way I could get in elk hunting shape or I could, no way I could stay in elk hunting shape. Yeah. And then it gives you, gives you perspective and a little yeah. bit of empathy for those who don't live in the mountains and they're trying to stay in elk shape. Yeah. And my mom, to keep herself active and busy, she knows my favorite thing in the world are her homemade oatmeal raisin cookies. <laughs> and so... If you can envision a wood tick that's been on a black bear all summer, all swelled up, that's what I'm feeling like right now. <laughs> and I got a mountain goat hunt. My my siblings were rotating uh, the the treatment here, and so I leave on Sunday, and I'm hunting the last two weeks of the goat season in Montana, and I'm thinking. I wonder if you can ride those llamas because I, I thought I <laughs> on Star Wars those llama looking things with with horns. Yeah, didn't they ride those? They totally did. I, yep. I've never yeah. seen the movie Star Wars, but somebody was telling me about it, and I'm thinking I'm going to call Bo Beatty and say, "Hey, Bo, you said you're bringing some llamas. Bring one with a saddle that I can ride because I'm out of shape, man." So you know I. How can you be your age and never watch Star Wars? I have never seen Star Wars. I wouldn't know Luke Mud Puppy from Princess whatever if they came and sat down and had coffee with me. What kind of a rock do you live on? I mean, you've, you'd never heard of Bon Jovi. You've never watched nope. Star Wars. Nope. I mean, how do you have internet at your home in Minnesota? Barely do. That's my mom, did, my, my mom didn't have internet until two days ago, and that's because <laughs> when I knew I was coming here in early October, I called around. There, There's a racket for internet in the rural part of America. So I call Spectrum, who delivers the fiber 
to my office. And they like, oh, that's part of Hermantown just outside of Duluth. You got to use this company. That's their territory. I'm like, whoa, 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 wait a second here. They're like, yeah, that's how it is. So I call that company. They're like, well, you got to buy TV along with it. And there's a cap on how much data you can use. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. So if you want to see what monopolies and no competition result in, Try to get internet in rural Minnesota. So oh. my mom yeah. was, you know, she never saw a need for internet as long as her iPhone had service and she could, you know, see what's on sale at JCPenney or whatever. That's, uh, you know, that's the extent so they, of they do much. have iPhones in Minnesota then. Oh, yeah, they do. Okay. I just envisioned I, I, I that's what it. Uh, that's what it looks like. They must. My niece got a hundred and fifty dollar ticket for being on, on on her iPhone while she was driving. So I'm, <laughs> I'm assuming that. Uh, I just envisioned a, a house with a phone hanging on the wall and one of those like ten foot tangled up cords from it. Mm-hmm. And, oh, that's know. yeah. I, the, that's probably still in existence here. So, yeah, I just got internet two days ago as you as you were getting text messages of my frustration. Finally, I went to CenturyLink, a completely different competitor, and they're like, well, yeah, we, we can bring you DSL. I'm like, well, that's better than anything else I got, so get your guy out here. So the first guy shows up on Monday, and he looks at it, he says, well, you got a problem with your phone jack. I'm like, well, they told me you're a technician. That's what the $99 was for. You'd fix that. (laughs) No, I don't fix that. You got to get a different technician. (laughs) So I'm trying. So imagine I'm trying to balance taking my mom to all of her treatments. She's got uh, radiation in the morning, chemo sandwiched in between radiation in the afternoon. So I'm trying to juggle all this. And so I call and they're like, well, someone's got to be there tomorrow if we're going to do it. I'm like, how about you text me when the guy's heading there? My mom can stay here at the treatment center, and I'll, I'll just dart out there. Okay. Well, the guy never shows up. Well, the next day, I, now I'm like on telephone call number eight, and I'm, I, I'm not a man of violence, but I, I got some pretty colorful language, and I really get frustrated. Uh, they say, all right. Wednesday, we'll have a technician there by 5 o'clock. The guy shows up, super nice guy. He's like, what do you mean the guy couldn't fix it on Monday? Hey, that, that's what we get paid to do. He said, I'm a technician just like he was. I'll fix it for you. I'm like, <laughs> you have no idea how excited I am. I asked him if I could go buy him a pizza or, or a 12-pack of beer or whatever. And he's like, no, I can't take any of that. I'm like, can I wash your truck for you? And uh, so it took six weeks or five and a half weeks, but I got internet two days ago. Very cool. Now we can do podcasts. We're back in business. So what are yeah, we going to talk so about? That's a long. That's a long-winded way of telling the audience why it's, the podcasts have been so sparse lately. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we got a lot of emails from the audience thanks to your Alaska story. Oh yeah. You you notice how many people sent in emails at the. Elk Talk podcast contact us link that we def- have to do with their stories of 
how they <laughs> nearly had a, a safety survival. I don't know what category you'd put it under, but a lot of people who elk hunt have had some pretty sketchy experiences. And I think Yo. you just either encouraged them or you liberated them to talk about it without feeling like they'd get lectured. The it's therapy, man. That's in. when I got to talk to you about it. It was almost like a therapy session. Just <laughs> I'm able to sleep now at night without waking up in cold sweats. And uh, yeah. so, with uh, almost six weeks or whatever, eight weeks to reflect on it, you got any further thoughts about how you and Donnie and John endangered your lives without maybe knowing you did? Yeah, I think, you know, we we were definitely prepared um, for what we thought we were going to need. Uh, obviously, Donnie's situation, you know, getting sick in a situation like that where whether you're in the backcountry or flying into a place, um, I think Alaska takes everything to the extreme because not only are you yeah. flown into a remote location, but you can't just get picked up. If Donnie would have had to get picked up, it would have been the Coast Guard in a helicopter coming to yeah. get him i mean there's no other option that you a plane can't fly in in weather like that up there so if yeah. if things are bad you know obviously you have to have some kind of a an sos button uh and we had we had ours there so we're prepared in that sense uh, but it's not like you're just camped at the truck and you get sick and you jump in and somebody drives you down to the nearest town and you go into the urgent care there's that's not there so you've got to be prepared to deal with um you know common things getting the flu um kidney stones whatever it is um, but beyond that you know I've, i i have had some time to reflect and even up there while we were in it uh you know i had to keep my mind from going to to dark places because we were cold all the time like it's yeah. 48, 50 degrees, downpouring rain, windy, and we're soaked to the bone. I mean, there is no way around. And I think that the thing that we had planned on was being able to build a fire. And had we been able to build a fire, the entire situation would have been different. It, it yeah. really would have changed the dynamics of going back to a, a teepee with a stove, which we packed with us. We just couldn't get a fire going. Even though we put wood inside the teepee to let it dry out, there's just so much humidity and everything is soaked through to the center that there was nothing that would burn. I spent hours trying to just get a little piece of wood to, to light on fire. And we had fire starter that, you know, it burned for five minutes, but once it's gone, it's gone. So that that was one of the things that we had planned on, knowing we were going to be wet, knowing it wasn't going to be a lot of fun, but also knowing that, hey, we've, we've got a fire, we've got a stove, we're going to be able to dry out, we're going to be okay. Yeah. Uh, so that was the first thing that, you know, we didn't prepare for worst, worst case. We had rain gear. We had, you know, waterproof boots. We had gaiters. We had all that, but it doesn't matter. When it's that wet, you can't stay dry. Yep. Uh, so the, the second thing was in those temperatures, 48, 50 degrees with the wind, if you're wet, you're in danger of hypothermia every minute. Like it, you sure. start moving, you're going to get hypothermia within... I don't know, 60 to 90 minutes probably. Soaking wet, 20 mile an hour wind, 50 degrees in a downpour, you're, you're hosed. I mean, there's, there's no way around it. And 
we would, you know, we hiked all day, we're packing meat, we're exhausted, but we couldn't stop. We would stop for five minutes to rest, take the pack off, which the pack adds insulation on your back. You take that pack off and you drop. I mean, if the temperature drops, you get cold a lot faster. So we'd stop, take the pack off to rest. And within five minutes, I would be like, John, I've got to, I've got to go. I'm starting to shiver here. I've got to keep going, which then you start thinking, if I fall and blow out my ACL, if I fall and break my leg, if I fall and twist my ankle, I'm not moving. You know, it's we we're we're in a lot of trouble. So it just we really had to slow down. We really had to watch every step. And like I said before, we're using crampons. It's that steep. So watching every step, I mean you step in mud and it breaks loose and you slide, you know, you're going for 10 or 20 feet at a minimum before you can get your get a foot underneath you and so there were a lot of those situations that every time they'd happen it'd be like gosh i can't you know i've got i can't break my leg here i can't do anything because if i sit we have nothing dry we don't have enough gear you know other than our sleeping bag that's back in the tent so it stays dry i have no other way of of getting warm here Um, so there's you know there's that and i think that for me was the biggest thing just as far as if you get hurt, it's a it truly is a life and death situation. And we just had to take extra precaution with every step we took and keep that thought out of our head because it does. It'll mess with you after four or five days in the backcountry, no contact with the outside world, knowing that they cannot physically fly in and get you. Um, our only option is calling the Coast Guard and hoping they can get a helicopter with a long line to pick me up before hypothermia sets in wow that's and so uh, you're telling that story Corey. and how many days would you say you've spent elk hunting in your life in the mountains <laughs> in in tough conditions a or, lot i, I don't yeah. know how many days but a hundreds lot. and hundreds and hundreds and I've been uncomfortable. I've never felt my life was in danger, even wolf hunting in the winter, even, you know, cougar hunting with hounds growing up where we would, you know, get stuck overnight and have to build a fire under a tree uh, in the middle of the winter in three feet of snow. I never felt like my life was, was in danger. You know, we're dry. We're able to stay dry when it's winter, when there's snow. Yeah, we get wet, sweating. But it's dry here in Idaho, and you can build a fire. I mean, middle of the winter, I can get a fire going anywhere here in Idaho. There's there's always something dry to break off and get a fire going. So I think that is the that was the deal breaker, the fire. You know, if I'd broke my leg and been able to get a fire going, I'd have been fine. But not being able to get a fire going, that's that's the that's the issue, I think. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> uh one person sent us kind of is it's a very very long email and it's a story that happened in a traditionally much warmer climate uh and drier climate than alaska and uh he's he's new to hunting uh i think he's been at it for four or five years and he drew an elk tag this year um and he thought he was prepared and then he goes into this story of how once he shot a bull and the weather turned on him and he realized the task that was in front of him and how experience 
still uh, four or five years of hunting still hadn't prepared him for what he faced to get this elk out of there in good conditions let alone 30 to 40 degrees with snow and rain uh he ended up at the er uh hypothermic uh and as he was going through listing all the things in my head i'm like you know this is kind of a good checklist of things to be prepared for or things maybe not to do or not maybe i should say things not to take for granted uh like he he talks about how his physical conditioning uh he'd been working out but then he had a family member that was sick for the two weeks prior to his hunt and he was primary caregiver and so he had two weeks where he pretty much didn't do anything and this was going to be a backpack hunt and it's an intense hunt and so he instantly realized right away that he had misjudged the physical nature and the toll the different type of body demands if you want to call it that the toll the terrain and and everything takes on your body differently than when you're just working out at the gym uh he brought clothes with him that he thought were going to make it work uh but i'm not going to say any brands but he brought a brand of rain gear that is mostly a fishing brand of rain gear and it got destroyed by the vegetation and so he ends up getting soaked he shoots his bull it's now snowing slash raining and by the time he gets part way through the gutless method he's got all the things you talked about you know the onset of but from his story it's getting to the point of not just the onset of hypothermia it was full-on hypothermia uh he ended up hitting the SOS button on his device. Um, and uh, I'm going to read this sentence. He says, uh, I've never been more physically or mentally challenged like this. And multiple times, my mind kept telling me to lay down in the snow and go to sleep. Which, if he would have yeah. done that. <laughs> fortunately for him, he he was at least still cognizant enough to to know that that's that final step of hypothermia uh he said even using a gps uh he somehow ended up going the wrong direction at least five times um and he eventually made it out to where his hunting partner and his son were waiting for him he's out of water he's shaking he can't talk uh and they took him to the er and uh so and then he yep. went on to listen to or list all the things that he felt he'd done wrong and uh, it would be easy for me or you or someone who's been doing this a long time to say well yeah what you know da 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 but i think when you approach this as someone who hey, this is what I've learned from watching videos, from what I've read, from you know going to seminars, whatever it might be, there still is a lot more to it than what might get thrown at you while you're out there. And uh, yeah. I'm, I'm thankful that this guy uh, made it out of there. He did get his elk, uh, but it could have been um, 
a huge, huge problem. Um, you know, he's listing off just a few things <clears throat> that uh, he said, I never should have shot a bull in this location at last light since it requires so much time and energy to field dress an animal this size. When my partner and I separated, he did not have an in-reach device, and the batteries in his radio eventually died. So there was no communication, a critical mistake, and a huge safety risk that we thought would be our safety net. Um, I did not have extra socks. I did not have waterproof, da-da-da. And I did not assess my gear or myself after the kill shot to prevent a life-threatening situation like hypothermia and uh, da-da-da. I've learned more about so as, as I was reading through, As I was reading through this, I'm thinking to myself, you know, this isn't very serious. You could have done this, you could have done this, you could have done this. But then I thought, I've been in those situations and I've done those things. Somebody that's never been in that situation before, it is life and death. I mean, it really, yeah. he could have laid down and died. They got two feet of snow, you know, that yeah. that night, I think he said. Yeah. Um, that, but again, I think the thing here, even as I'm reading through everything there, everything would have been okay if he could have or would have built a fire and been prepared to build yep. a fire and even stay on the mountain overnight. Yep. And, and so a space yep. blanket, fire starter, those those have to be essential in everybody's kit, no matter if they're going out for an hour hunt in the evening uh, and right behind their house, whatever it is, you have to have basic survival stuff. And yep. like I said, we couldn't get a fire going in Alaska, but I would guess most places aside from Oregon, Washington coast, uh, most other places you can get a fire going, even at 12,000 feet in Colorado in November, you can find dry kindling and, and tinder to get a fire going. And that would have changed everything for him. He could have stayed and finished, um, taking care of the elk, you know, like I said, they didn't have radio communication. So that definitely challenges being able to stay on the mountain and not have your hunting partner freak out and call search and rescue. Um, but that keeps you from getting, you know, hypothermic that keeps you warm. You're able to stay there and finish the job. Uh, just a lot of things. And, and definitely he bit off more than he can chew. And he admitted that, um, yeah. but you've got to be prepared for, for those things. And I think that, fire in my experience now fires everything if you can get a fire going you can survive you can and you can be comfortable and keep your mind yeah. comfortable and that's that's huge yeah. so if anything for those who don't have that experience if there's anything you can take away from my experience in alaska and this email and and the whole conversation is make sure you know how to start a fire make sure you are able to start a fire and a space blanket weighs like two ounces throw a space blanket in the bottom of your pack so you have it i've i've seen them in use i've never resorted to personally using one but i've been on hunts where we stayed on the mountain overnight and a hunting partner had one and i was incredibly jealous so they were <laughs> yeah well i there were some things this guy did right though once things yeah. turned like he he kept his wits about him of avoiding the the tendencies you know it, it's hard to understand but everybody says that when you get hypothermic to that degree you make bad decisions and eventually you make not just bad but 
life-ending decision. So he didn't do that. It sounds like he didn't panic. Uh, he, he kept moving when he knew he was cold and hypothermic. Uh, and when he, he got lost or got turned around, as he said, he didn't panic. So he did some things right that probably saved his life. Um, and yep. now he's, he's reflecting on, on all of it. And I, I get that. And he, he just, you know, summarizes it by saying that I thought I was prepared enough for this hunt. And I was not, I was not prepared for a storm of this magnitude. I forgot key pieces of clothing and gear, which in this country could be in my life or my death. I thought I was in good enough physical shape through weighted pack training. And uh, it sounds like he was, you know, not being able to, to really do it in the mountains as much. And then he says, I wasn't even close to being in good enough shape. Uh, so and I'm one more thing that. I think to add to that, he, he did the right things. You know, he, he toughed it out. He had grit. And I think that's so important. Yeah. The mental part of it, you know, for me in Alaska, that was everything. I mean, I never, it was horrible. It was absolutely the worst conditions I can imagine hunting and camping in. And we were stuck in it. And I hated every second of it, but I never, you know, my mind didn't ever go to that place where it's like, I just want to give up. You know, let's, let's hit the SOS button. Let's do that. It's like, Hey, we've got a job to do. We've got to get it done. It's going to suck. It's going to be miserable, but we've got to do it. So let's just get it done. And, and, you know, he's the same way. He's sitting there going, I'm in the middle of processing an elk. I'm, I recognize that things are going south quickly here. I've got to get out. And, you know, he, he yeah. pushed through it. He persevered. He had grit. And I think that's so important to stress that, you know, put yourself in situations that aren't always comfortable. Go out and camp in the rain. You know, just knowing that you've got, you can get, climb back in your truck and go home if you really have to. But the more that you do things that are uncomfortable, the more mentally strong you're going to get. And that goes to physical conditioning. If you're working out with a weighted pack, that you're going to suffer through some, some workouts. And that's going to make your mind say, hey, I can handle a little more than I thought I could. And that's so vital in those situations is you can't give up. And I think, you know, human tendency, especially hunters, don't give up. And I think that's what saves a lot of people in a lot of situations that they still have nightmares about, but they make it through because uh, they've got grit. And I think that's a, that's a testament to being an elk hunter is you've got to be tough. You've got you've to stick with it. You've got to overcome some obstacles and some tough things. And when things do go south, uh, fortunately, most of the time, we're able to to power through it and make it back out yeah well uh i appreciate that he was as candid as he was and yeah sent such a long email uh he summarizes by saying i learned more in this hunt about survival and mistakes than all my previous hunts combined i hope that by sharing my story other new hunters do not make the same mistakes i did and then he, he Kind of says that I realized that being stuck in the tent for four days waiting out the storm probably contributed to some of his misjudgments. I, I suppose, if, you know, you get antsy, you get 
a little bit of cabin fever and you say, I'm going out and I'm going to give it heck today. And uh, sometimes you get in a little over your head or too far out in front of your skis or whatever you'd want to say. But so there's a, I've never heard that used too far out in front of your skis. I like that one. Oh yeah. If you do that, you end up cartwheeling down the mountain. Oh, and if yeah. you want to see some of those YouTube videos about the, you know, you see some of those adventure skiers going down these slopes that they're not even slopes or cliffs. It's like that guy died. And somehow they, <laughs> they get to the bottom after an 800 vertical foot, somersault and they shake their head like oh well wonder if they'll fly me back up to the top so i can try it a second time (laughs) (laughs) those are the people whose risk assessment you don't want to rely upon for your own (laughs) that's gonna say they're probably elk hunters just looking for something to do in the winter (laughs) (laughs) probably yeah you're probably right but so anyhow with it being winter you know or the late season period of hunting in some of the states that still have seasons right now montana we got a few weeks left uh some limited hunts in wyoming and idaho and colorado's third season is about to start tomorrow uh and maybe even you know arizona has those late uh rifle hunts i suspect there's a lot of people in Arizona who might not be accustomed to some of those surprise weather events that happen when you get up on the Mogollon Rim or up in the, you know, the higher country up there. And it just, it catches you off guard if you're not used to it, if you haven't lived it. So be safe, I guess. And, and be adventurous. Like you said, you know, push yourself, but make sure you have a safety net. Um, I, I, I think in this case, and I've seen this, not just in this person's situation, but I never rely on electronic communication as my safety net. Because like where you were at in Alaska, if a cell phone was your quote unquote safety net. Well, there, there's no just, cell reception there. No, you might as well just stand on yeah. a rock and yell. Uh, in this instance, it sounds like this guy had planned on communicating via an inReach or something with his buddy. His buddy had radios, which a lot of states radios are legal, and you know you run out of batteries. That's so. Your mind is your true safety net. Your 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 ability to cope and handle with these situations, and don't don't make the false or I don't know if false is the right word, but don't don't give yourself this false confidence in some electronic device. What's really going to get you through it is your mind and your fortitude and your ability to stay calm and and maybe not get in that situation to the point of no return. So when you feel that, hey, this is getting a little sketchy, uh, you know, don't go all the way out to the end of the plank. Yep. No, and I've just, I've learned that, you know, when your mind does start going there, when it starts, you know, you start panicking a little bit, stopping, collecting yourself is so important so you don't start making bad decisions, recognizing that, hey, I've, I've got to think through this. I need to get my mind clear here. And, you know, my grandpa was, he was, I think, one of the, the longest uh, active search and rescue members in Clearwater County growing up. And so, 
I got to spend a lot of time with him. And even as a little kid, you know, he'd be at logging camp and I'd go out and spend a week or two with him. Uh, and at night, you know, he'd come back after logging and we'd lay in the camper and I'd just beg him to tell me more stories about search and rescues that he'd been on. And, you know, it, it came down to just about every one. You know, I remember him sharing one story. There was somebody that was lost. They weren't prepared. They didn't even have a flashlight or anything. And this is back in the, you know, yeah. 70s or 80s when this story took place. Uh, but they panicked and they they took off running in the dark in the woods. And, mm -hmm. you know, I've been in that situation before where you're like, I just, I want to get out of here. I want to go. You know, you want to take off running just to get it over with and figure out what's going on. But they did and they ended up falling off of a cliff. And there was a tree that, that branched down low about 15 feet off the ground. And they ended up hanging themselves in that notch in that tree after falling off the cliff. And, wow. you know, just several stories like that where people would panic and not make good decisions. Had the, It was, I think this story was in July or something that it happened. So had the person just sat down, yeah, they'd have been uncomfortable overnight and probably shivered. They wouldn't have got hypothermia, took place in Idaho. Uh, they would have been fine, but they panicked and, and ran in the dark and didn't know where they were going and fell off a cliff. And so it's just what you said there about staying calm, clearing your mind, you know, working through the situation you're in rather than panicking is, is huge. So important. Yeah. Well, I think it, the purpose of that was to give people reason to think about it and kind of reassess their own checklists. Am I ready? Am I prepared? And hopefully, hopefully we've accomplished that. And all of you who sent in similar emails, uh, thanks for doing so because it, it is that reminder that stuff, stuff can go south and, uh, you know, there's not always 911 to come pull you out of the ditch. Yeah. Uh, we're in late season mode now, Corey. <laughs> This I'm, is, I'm grateful. Idaho doesn't have much of a late season. I mean, there are opportunities, but our general rifle hunt uh, closed about a week ago on November 3rd. Uh, and it really, I mean, there's a difference there. We were still hunting the post rut, I think, right up until all the way to the end. I never did see a bachelor group of bulls. Uh, the bulls were still single and they were in sanctuaries and hardly moving at all. And if they did move, it was, it was really, uh, last light in the evening or first thing in the morning you might catch them, but then it was just dead during the day. And, uh, I, I've realized that I don't like hunting the post rut. I, I like the late season way better. <laughs> I do. I, I, I would way rather hunt late season than post rut. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember. In our last podcast, was I just getting ready to fly out and uh, go, go to take Mexico, our sweepstakes winner? Yep. Or, or had I come back? I can't remember. I don't remember. Yeah, I, it was... But, yeah. Oh well. But that uh, was but post that, rut in yeah. In that was ab absolute post rut hunt there. I mean, every bit about it was post rut. Um, single bulls, not yet bachelored up in sanctuaries, and so <clears throat> it was classic of how post rut works. Um, you guys in Idaho, that's you know why you guys can still have a general season. 
because it's hard to kill bull elk on public land in the post rut period. <laughs> it is. <laughs> and in Montana, I, you know, we start our season usually somewhere around the 22nd to 26th of October. So we're in that last part of the post rut. But it's so much easier to fill your elk tag in the late season than it is the post rut. So, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm unfortunately going to miss. Well, where I'm mountain goat hunting, maybe I'll stumble across an elk, but I'm not going to be looking for one. So this <laughs> this might be one of those years where I, because of my messed up calendar, I don't get to go do my fun in November of chasing late season elk. Yeah. Uh, or, or maybe I should just shoot the first mountain goat I see and then go chase late season elk and lie to the rest of the world and say, Oh no, I'm still mountain goat hunting. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, I did. uh, I had, you know, I got in on some, some younger bulls. There was a five point that was feeding by himself. One day I could have shot. I got in on a herd that had two spikes in it and they fed within 20 yards of me. You know, I, I got on another spike. I was just hiking, looking for elk and walked over a ridge and there's a spike feeding below me at, 30 yards and he walked over the hill and I cow called once and he ran up to 15 yards from me. So there was, you know, there were opportunities with those big bulls. I didn't see a mature bull, uh, had two bulls bugling on private property right up till the last day of the season. And, you know, I mean, they're, they're vocal, they would bugle, but there's no way to call them in. They weren't coming in. And, uh, you know, I was, I was hunting with my daughter most of the time. And so we were using the, the Baku e-bike with her in a trailer because of her knee situation and, and not being mobile and trying to hunt elk in uh, post rut. That's a recipe for failure for yeah. sure. That's, that's a huge challenge. That's a really huge challenge. Not. Well, our, our friends, Bo and Kirsten Beatty sent me a text yesterday. Kirsten shot a six by six. She she has one of your late uh, late season tags in Idaho, um, and Bo was explaining it to me. He's like, "Yeah, we saw this herd of cows down low, and I looked up the mountain, and up in this really nasty place was a bachelor group of bulls, and so we <laughs> snuck up there, and she shot one. The end." <laughs> <laughs> And uh, as he was explaining it to me, I'm like, this is check every box of what the checklist is for late season bulls on public land. So I was happy for him. So I just wish I was there watching, but I, and I'm, I would volunteer to help him pack it out because I know he had some llamas probably. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's easy to say you should have called me. I'd have come and helped. Yeah, knowing when yeah. they have llamas. <laughs> yeah, so I'm I'm hoping my crew is back in Montana looking to fill some tags, but I don't know. They they're probably goofing off. The boss <laughs> is gone. So. <laughs> uh, no, but uh, yeah. What do you think your Alaska story? You think people are. Did you discourage people or did you encourage people to apply in Alaska with that story? You think it'll be a a net uh, increase in interest or a decrease in interest? Let's put it this way. If my story 
made anybody want to go there, I failed because it's, I feel it's my duty to <laughs> warn people. This is not, I mean, it's, yeah, you hear about things like, I want to try that. This, this isn't something to try. It's, it was not yeah. fun. I'm sure that there are probably um, situations and conditions and different areas within Alaska that might be a little bit more accommodating. You might get lucky. Uh, I will I, I'm still saying I will never do that hunt again. So I've had time to heal mentally and physically, and I don't think you could pay me to, to go and do that hunt. So I hope that uh, I don't put anybody in a situation where they want to go and do that. Uh, if you do, you've been warned. And I, I, I hope that uh, if you decide to try it, that things turn out really good, but I don't think they will. Yeah. Well, I've hunted all around that area for black bears. That's mostly a lowland coastal thing. And you look up at those mountains, you're like, I don't want to climb up that. <laughs> and then I've done Sitka blacktail there twice, which is, you know, a month prior to elk season. And it's absolutely miserable hiking up there. And hauling out a Sitka blacktail buck is a whole lot different than hauling out <laughs> one of those humongous Roosevelt elk up there. So I, I, I'll admit that there were times where I had this little bit of intrigue of, I know there are elk on some of these islands over there. I wonder if I should go do that. You have succeeded in completely vaporizing any interest I've ever had. Good in hunting elk in that part of Alaska. So that's good. I've done my job. <laughs> mission accomplished, at least with me. Yeah. So now, and people are probably going to you know look at it and say, "Oh, he just you know doesn't want us applying, so he can go back." I I promise you, I have no desire to go back. <laughs> and and I, I you know I'm looking at Fjordland and New Zealand and other challenging places that are probably going to be somewhat similar but different enough that i'm still willing to consider that i alaska is not the place to go to elk hunt <laughs> but if you want to i i just want people to know that the deadline for alaska is december 15th five o'clock alaska standard time so you know, if you want to, you, you got to be ahead of the game with Alaska. If you want all the details, go out to gohunt.com, sign up for their insider and use promo code elk talk. But, uh, I, I, yeah, I just, just sound that discouraging, but you, you well, can, when you I, use I will, the word, when you use the word deadline, the first thing that stands out to me is the word dead. So <laughs> the, the Alaska deadline is coming up. Uh, oh, choose, well. choose your hunts wisely ahead of the deadline. Well, well, I can assure you I'm not applying for elk, so the odds, no one's got to worry about competing with me for a time. <laughs> How about Donnie? Is it, you got Donnie oh. <laughs> excited about giving another... Crack Donnie, Donnie would never go again. I, I couldn't convince him <laughs> to. I mean, knowing Donnie, I probably could convince him to, but if he had a, you know, he would cringe and curl up in the fetal position and 
Yeah. Well, I, I thought maybe I should just call him and say, hey, Donnie, I'm thinking of applying in Alaska. And just see what his response would be. He'd probably yeah. hang up the phone on me. I would hope he uh, would. So, but then we have, uh, you know, right now there's, uh, I'll call it a scoping period uh, for people who hunt Colorado. Colorado is the most generous state in the union in the West when it comes to non-resident allocation. And so they're... Colorado Parks and Wildlife is taking comments about tag allocation discussion, and I don't know where that'll go. I've read kind of the overviews of it, uh, but whether that's going to change the ratio between resident and non-resident, if it's going to change the the uh, over-the-counters for archery and the second and third rifle, I don't know where it'll end up. But I just want people to know that that discussion is out there. Um, yeah. And we know that Wyoming uh, has been having over the last few years a discussion about uh, possibly changing their allocation between resident and non-resident. And Wyoming is the second most generous state in the West. Yep. Um, so just so people are aware of that. And um, I did take the uh, survey for Colorado and they're definitely asking questions. Get? Yeah, they're they're definitely asking questions about non-resident allocation, uh, non-resident over-the-counter opportunity, you know, there's a there's going to be an impact from this survey for sure. Yeah. I mean, you guys in Idaho, when did you guys go to this what I'll call it zone or region system for your outcomes it's been Was quite that, a while yeah yeah do you think it did it have the desired effect uh not until this year so we we've had the zones and the reason they do that is it's different managing elk in the desert of southwest idaho than it is in the rainforest of northern idaho so they they yeah. broke it broke the state into these zones that have similar management um, structures and platforms, you know, whether it's habitat, whether it's uh, terrain, climate, all these things. And so they did try to organize it so it's easier to manage the, the animals. But in doing so, they didn't limit how many people could hunt in each zone. So it's still an over-the-counter mm -hmm. opportunity. So literally we have, you know, 14,000, 17,000, whatever the number of non-resident elk tags is, every single non-resident over-the-counter elk hunter could potentially end up in the exact same place. I mean, it never happened mm -hmm. like that, but there were areas where there was crowding, where there was a, a concentration of, those non-resident hunters. And so the resident hunters, you know, they complained. All I see is non-resident hunters. Uh, you know, obviously, if the non-residents are going there, there's probably a reason. You know, it's probably good hunting. And so there's probably a, a high, high concentration of resident hunters. So there was nothing in place to manage the hunters in those zones. They were strictly set up for managing the animals, which if you're going to manage the, the wildlife, you've got to manage the hunters too. So this year, yeah. for the first time, uh, and, you know, everybody had a horrible experience with, with the Idaho uh, tag <laughs> sale date, uh, trying to get in and get their place in line and tags sold out in a matter of minutes in some zones. Uh, so that was a debacle. But what it did was they set a limit on the number of non-residents that could purchase tags 
in each of these zones. And I've heard mm-hmm. from quite a few people that it did help in, in a lot of areas. Uh, okay. We saw well, the area we went, which first time we'd ever been there, but all we saw were non-resident vehicles. And so didn't see any any locals. So I don't know if it'd been just hammered and overrun in the past and, and residents no longer hunted there. Uh, we didn't see a ton of people, but uh, what we did see was was out of state plates. Uh, so I think I think that helped for sure uh, to disperse the pressure more than anything. Hmm. So if I want to be in on the debacle for Idaho for next year, isn't December first your guys's day where you get to frustrate every non-resident who gets put? you know, queue to wait for eight or 12 hours? I don't believe it was. I think uh, I think they had a different, a different date. Day. Yeah, so it used oh. to be that that was the date. And I think there still are some tags maybe that go on sale or at least used to go on sale on December 1st uh, before there were, there were limits on it. Uh, I have not okay. looked to see. I, I'm, I know they're going to have to do something different. The the uh, free for all they had last year was not a sustainable platform for <laughs> distributing tags. So, with that being said, no. I wouldn't be surprised if they look at going to something like Wyoming does, where it's a draw for all non residents uh, and there's no yeah. waiting in line. You know, I think the draw odds would be relatively good for a lot of zones. Uh, but yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if we see that. And there were some questions in the Colorado survey that indicated they were looking at doing the same thing for non-residents uh, to disperse them a little. But again, that was just a survey. There's no talk, but some of the questions definitely directed my mind to think that, hey, they're looking at making some changes that will affect how tags are distributed. Yeah. Well. When that date comes out, I guess the point of bringing it up is, folks, be paying attention if Idaho's on your on your radar. Because yeah. when it comes out, it's you know <laughs> you got to be ready. You got to you got to be there, paying attention. And yeah, if if you don't, you'll be on the outside looking in, kind of <laughs> like I was this year. Yeah, I'd like to say that I I did the right thing, but I. I was out of town, and when I got back to coverage, I had all these text messages. Did you get drawn into that junk heap called Idaho this shit today? I'm like, what are you guys talking about? So people were telling me their their frustrations of how the Idaho process had worked last year. But well, the reason I bring that up is, you know, the, our two most generous Western states, Colorado and Wyoming are feeling that they got to start looking at this allocation of opportunity. And we can argue the why or the what the problem is. Uh, the reality is we're getting more effective as hunters. As our success rates increase, you can only have so much harvest and sustain the resource. So that's one factor. But the other factor is the United States has added 70 million people since 1990. And what are some of the fastest growing states? The Rocky Mountain states. Yeah, Idaho's you guys number one Idaho, right now. You guys are inundated right now. Yep. Colorado, Nevada, 
Utah, Arizona, even Montana to some degree. I mean, I should have thrown Utah in here. I've I've always been a big I don't want to say big. I've always just told people that I don't get too excited about the over the counter elk hunting in Utah. Well, that's turned into such a high demand debacle for the tags they have that they're now going to reform that system for the next year. So as these Western states grow in population, the ability for state agencies to be as generous with non-residents as they have been just goes away. Yep. I, I, I don't know any other way to say it. So you add 70 million people across the country with a lot of them landing in the Rocky mountain States. It eats up more habitat, which makes probably less wildlife in spite of all of our efforts for towards conservation. It still is having an impact. It puts a lot more people out in the woods, whether they hunt or don't hunt. I mean, look at the studies in Colorado of quote unquote, non-consumptive users and the impact that's having on elk herds. They've proven now, the studies show that non-consumptive users, I hate that term, but that's what they use, uh, hikers, bikers, you know, whatever, they are having a negative impact. Then you get, I call it the new age landowner who comes and it seems like you aren't anybody on Wall Street if you don't have a rock a ranch in the Rocky Mountains <laughs> as part of your portfolio. You know, Montana seems to be ground zero in that. Uh, so a lot of people have been displaced from those private ranches where they knew somebody, you know, the, the family that might have been there for generations, just, you know, they had to sell and so all of this puts more and more people on the remaining accessible public land and it creates more demand for tags and the very first place that friction gets settled out is the resident versus non-resident allocation yeah i don't know how else to say it i just probably is what it is and it's it's probably going to continue that path yeah. I, yeah the first people that are going to be affected will be the non-residents yeah yeah and it, yeah i i often get asked by people oh you need to jump into this issue in whatever state and i usually don't as much as i'm <laughs> In public land issues, I get involved in conservation issues and use our platforms towards that. We've had a state-based system of wildlife management in this country since it started. And some people might say, well, this is a, a cop-out on my part. And I don't know, maybe it is. But I say that the system for that state, since it's a state trustee responsibility, should be decided by those residents yep. and I'll deal with whatever they come up with. And, uh, that's why I'm pretty much a loud mouth on the Montana side of things. Uh, <laughs> but I don't, I, you know, I'm, I struggle to think I should go tell Wyoming, New Mexico, Colorado, Idaho, you know, whatever, how they should run their things. Yep. And, uh, whatever they come up with, I'll I'll deal with it. I'll you know figure out how do I try to make it work. Um, but 
I do surveys. I mean, like you were doing the Colorado survey. I've done surveys in other states to give them my opinion when they've asked, but it's not like I'm going to go down and sit on their legislative steps and say, hey, pay attention. (laughs) (laughs) I've got the idea for your state. Yeah. So I think that's that's hard for for all of us to try tell other states what to do. Maybe I'm wrong in that. Some people will say, oh, but it's federal land. We should all have to say, <laughs> well, you and I have talked about this many times, but since we know that that discussion is coming, we may as well just remind people that the land might be federal, even though most of it's not. You know, in Montana, we're one third federal, two thirds private. In Idaho, you guys got a ton of federal land. We do. Yeah. You guys got a way higher percentage than we do. But the point of it is, is the wildlife is separate from the land. It's not connected to the land in any way. So the state gets to manage the wildlife, and the landowner, whoever that is, private, state, or federal, gets to manage the land. There's there's no real connection to opportunity or tag allocation based on land ownership yeah so, but we know that we know that comment is coming every time <laughs> top topics <laughs> right exactly is there, is there ever a discussion where that doesn't pop up no and i think it's important you know you use the word non-consumptive they're they're free to be a non-consumptive uh, whatever yeah. visitor to any state on federal land, uh, yeah. But the the resources on that federal land belong to the state as far as yeah. wildlife. Yep. So anyhow, I I just thought I'd I'd bring that up because I don't think the issue is going to get less controversial. I think it's going to get more controversial, and. Uh, I, I I don't blame the residents of Colorado and Wyoming for wanting more resource allocated to them. Yeah. They live there. They pay taxes there. They probably do a lot of the local on-the-ground conservation volunteerism. They're probably the ones at public hearings and legislative sessions allocate, or advocating for the wildlife in that state. I, I'd have a pretty hard time arguing that they shouldn't get a better shake yeah other than in wyoming where they don't pay as much taxes (laughs) (laughs) so are you saying wyoming deserves a state income tax oh man i don't know if they i mean i'm not gonna mess up their state we it's just (laughs) i look at what we have to pay and think man i think we deserve more of a voice in managing our wildlife than they do if it's based on paying taxes yeah (laughs) Uh, well these these affect our audience you know yeah. no matter where they live we're we're all a resident in one state and a non-resident in 49 other states so yep. it's uh and the, i guess to me it always brings home an emphasis and importance on trying in whatever way possible to create more access and to put more elk or more wildlife in the hills. Yep. And that gets more expensive and more difficult every year, but we got to just keep doing it and keep working at it because yep. there's an awful lot of pressures that 
are competing for space and habitat and everything else. So That's why I always say if you're an elk hunter and not a member of the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, I, uh, I think that we need to reevaluate there because they are doing that. They're, they're constantly, that's yeah. their mission is to try to add more access, try to add more elk, more, you know, more pieces of pie at the table. Yeah. To speaking of which, did you see the the big proposal or big project that RMEF is working on in Northeast Oregon? Yeah, with, the Minum. Uh, yeah, Minum River, I think yep. it's called. Uh, it's two phases, as I understand it. The one that's going to close uh, in the next week, it'll close. It's That's like... 4,500 acres, something like that. So just under 5,000 acres. Uh, and then the second phase uh, will close, uh, I think, in the end of 2023. And it's almost 11,000 acres. So the total project is over 15,000 acres. And uh, it's near the Eagle Cap Wilderness. I, I wasn't familiar with the Eagle Cap until this announcement came out. And I started researching. There's some seriously rugged country in that part of Oregon <laughs> that I I did not give it credit for what's there. Yeah. Uh, but they're working with Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife and then the... Uh, I think it's the private landowner. It's called uh, the Hancock Natural Resource Group. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if they're the private landowner or, or how they're involved, but uh, Hancock Natural Resources is uh, the other part of it. But this is a huge project. Yeah, I mean, 15,000 acres, classic habitat for wintering ground for all kinds of species. But then also the amount of access it provides to other places, other pieces of public land. So yep. cool stuff. Yeah. No, and, and needed like that's things like that. You look at 16,000 acres of access being opened uh, or habitat being improved, whatever it is, these projects make a difference. And, you know, yeah. 16,000 acres is huge. When we talk 200 acres or 500 acres, sometimes we look at it and think, well, yeah, not that big a deal. But usually when the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation does those projects, that 200 acres or that 500 acres gets you access to thousands and thousands of acres of public land that's been traditionally locked up or, or really hard to access. So it's, you know, the, the whole piece of the puzzle, plus the fact that they're able to leverage state agencies, federal agencies, private landowners, and work together. Uh, I forget what the percentage is, but, you know, when it comes to access, our our contribution to the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, their usage of that, those revenues and that finance is able to be compounded like 10 times. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a leveraging factor that depending on the project can, you know, might only be four or five to one, but in many instances it's way, way higher than that. Yeah. So, but I, I guess the for me, it, it just is another part of the importance as we have these discussions about allocation of opportunity. If we aren't 
doing the heavy lifting and helping with the groups and the and you know the effort however someone contributes to it with their volunteerism their money some combination of all of it uh we're we're gonna lose in the long run yep. so uh you know this this area uh just the wintering uh elk herd in this thing i guess it's going to be managed as a state uh wildlife area uh but they say right now uh it it winters 1400 elk so that's yeah. a that's a pretty good number of elk that yeah. you certainly don't don't want to lose any type of habitat that's critical for that so yep but hey you know those are just things that when you see them pop up one is as big as them i don't know how do you how do you pronounce that minum or minum 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 okay so uh that's just our i want to say our it's it's the work of an awful an awful lot of people putting their shoulder to the wheel and uh creating a very large landscape level conservation project that's going to be helpful for wildlife and huge help for uh public access yep. so be there <laughs> get involved yeah so what else we got on our list here Got anything else that i'm missing i don't think so i've been i I can, you know, I've been like 65 minutes now without a oatmeal and raisin cookie. (laughs) Hey, I do want to, I do want to ask you a question. You'd mentioned at the beginning of, of the discussion of allocation of tags that Mm -hmm. we're becoming more proficient hunters. Success rates are increasing. Are success rates increasing? It depends on uh, by weapon type, by season, and by species. Uh, like I'll use an example in Arizona. Arizona has this thing where it, it's this their management framework says if more than twenty percent of the harvest is by archery, they crank down the archery tags. So they've had huge spikes in success rates since two thousand and fifteen in their archery success. I mean, like it went from eight, nine, 10% up into the high teens. Hmm. And so I'm, I'm looking at that. I'm looking at Wyoming, uh, their elk success rates, uh, compared to 10 years ago or 20 years ago are, are significantly improved. Um, I think as you get more and more people out in the field though, and you put more and more pressure on elk and move them to inaccessible properties. Yeah, uh, I think success rates go down. Um, yeah. So I I think the effectiveness of our tools are making an impact on that. That was I, my next question: you know, Was do you think it's a a technological advancement? discussion or is it a matter of all of the conservation efforts that are putting more animals in some of these states i know you know wyoming has a great herd of elk arizona manages Mm -hmm. very strictly for their elk so is it a matter of you know a bigger piece of pie there and and the same number of people now they're 
they're getting a bigger piece of pie, which is the increased success rate, or is it a, a matter of scouting tools and technology, you know, in weapons? You know, I, I bet that's probably a, a pretty specific answer. I mean, I could make one up if you want me to, <laughs> but uh, I bet you it's somewhat specific by state, how conservatively they manage or don't manage. Uh, like Montana, you know, if you can fog a mirror, they'll sell you two or three elk tags. Uh, <laughs> if you can fog and, a mirror. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Montana, we have some of the lowest success rates. Because, you know, it, with your paycheck, you get an elk tag, it seems like. Uh, <laughs> you know, the mailman, it, it, the cost of the UPS or the U.S. Postal Service would lose less money if they didn't have to deliver all those extra elk tags every year that they give away in Montana. <laughs> you know, most days, like New York, if you drive through New York or Pennsylvania, you got to stop and pay a toll to stay on the highway. In Montana, they stop you and hand you a cow tag. <laughs> <laughs> all right i'm just joking uh, right. my my point being it's so specific by state because you mentioned yeah. arizona new mexico wyoming nevada they they manage very conservatively for the quality of the experience montana they manage for you know let's just make sure everybody who wanted wants a tag can get one yeah. as far as residents. Uh, and so that's why we have such low success rates. Um, yeah. But then I think also I should say management philosophies probably play into some of that in Montana. When you have hordes of people descending on groups of elk, they quickly find out where they don't, you know, where are the properties where they don't get shot at? Yep. So excess hunting pressure can, I think, reduce success rates in terms of both just you have such a large denominator that you're only going to take X number of elk. So if you got, you know, three times as many people, you're going to have one third the success rate as if you didn't have three times as many. But then also it becomes even more of this cycle because that much pressure pushes the elk to the places where they just don't want to get shot so yep that's what i've noticed around here is there's a lot of elk that are now making their home on private land that you know didn't used to and and it's Mm -hmm. not accessible private land you know it's down low it's it's not rural private land it's it's close to town and makes it really Mm -hmm. hard to hunt them yeah I mean, where I live in Montana, there's a herd of elk that come through either my yard or the neighbor's yard every winter. And uh, they aren't getting shot at. Yep. And so the farmer, you know, my neighbor across the road, he's got 120 acres of alfalfa. He gets to feed a lot of elk. <laughs> used to kind of disperse up in the foothills. Uh, and that's that's happening in a lot of places and you know the in montana the other thing we're about ready to embark on is we're going to start expanding our cow hunts and shoulder seasons onto the public land so our elk that are well behaved and stay up on the public and you know later on migrate down into the foothills 
they're not the ones that the landowners are complaining about. The ones the landowners are complaining about are sleeping underneath the irrigation pivot or tearing the fence down. Well, those are the ones that we won't have any access to. So let's kill the well-behaved ones and say we did something good while we didn't do anything to the ones that are the problem. Yep. So that happens. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the next time I go to a Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks Commission meeting, they're probably going to ask me to leave because <laughs> uh, I'm I'm pretty harsh critic to to I, I'm all about you know management and doing what's right. Uh, but we've tried some of these things in Montana before, and they were complete failures. But I don't know. Maybe the reason they were failures is we just didn't try hard enough. You know, we, we didn't we didn't kill enough of the good elk. <laughs> I say that comp- my tongue so yeah. firmly planted in my cheek that. But uh, so I don't know. It's I think if they were easy answers, Corey, we would have solved them a long time ago. Yeah, and that's that goes back to another thing of where the the way it gets solved in Montana is going to be way different than it gets solved in New Mexico versus Nevada versus Colorado. Um, and you were, you made a really good point about how your Owyhee country and Southwest desert of, of Idaho is so much different than your panhandle country. And I think you guys did a really good thing by deciding to manage your elk based on those landscape differences in Montana. We've had a one size fits all since the fishing game commission first started allowing elk hunting back in the 1920s. Yep. I mean, and you can't. You can't manage. Montana is, yeah, it just doesn't work. You can't. No, I, you look at southeast Montana, which is mostly private, Ponderosa, rolling hill country, with a lot of agriculture. Compare that to northwest Montana, where we, you know, we're we're on a boundary with you guys in your Panhandle, where it's just thick, wet rainforest, mostly public land. To try manage those diverse landscapes with a one size fits all is a one size of failure. Yep. And I know that sounds pretty critical. Montana <laughs> still has some good hunting, but we're there's a lot of changes coming with population growth. Uh, you guys are seeing it so so intensely. When I yep. drive through Idaho, it's like holy cow, I thought Bozeman was growing. Your whole state is growing like that. It is. Uh, we were just in Boise and yesterday so, and uh, drove by, and there must have been 40 or 50 uh, new construction homes that were all at the same phase of construction in one little subdivision. I mean, it was on a scale I haven't seen before. You know, you drive down a, a road, and you'll see a subdivision on the left side and the right side, and there's a handful, you know, there's some pre-built homes that are being lived in and new construction going on when it grows. This was like an entire subdivision that they started building all of the homes in it at the same time. And, you know, I mean, that's, you you don't do that unless you've got a whole bunch of buyers lined up that are, that are coming in. And we just never, we've never seen growth like that. Idaho is the number one growing state in the United States right now. Yeah. So how how can we look at look out the front mirror 
front or front windshield and do it adaptively rather than looking in the rear view mirror and just say, well, this is what we've always done. So that's what we're going to do. Yep. That's, that's really the challenge I see in it. None of these are going to come without friction. You know, there's going to be a lot of change required to, to handle that population growth. Totally. And I, I wish it was different, but it is, is what it is. <laughs> uh, anyhow, I hope I don't have a heart attack on my goat hunt next week because I'd like to be able to do another podcast in a week or two. You know, the, but, the thing you need to do is just bring you a big Ziploc bag full of oatmeal raisin cookies and you'll be fine. I, oh, there you go. Yeah. I'll do that. I'll see what I can do here. <laughs> Tell my mom, hey, you know, show me how to do this because in between your treatments, I could be whipping us up some cookies. <laughs> um, but, uh, no, I, I'm just, I'll be honest with you, Corey. I'm, I just am worried about this goat hunt in, in terms of goat hunts are never easy. And sitting here at the mid in the Midwest at eight or nine hundred feet of elevation, and not being able to get out and exercise as much as I normally am this time of year, I'm going to be going really slow, like so slow. We probably are going to have to put the cameras. In, what's the opposite of slow motion? <laughs> sped up (laughs) yeah just to make it look like i'm moving (laughs) the audience will take that slider bar and they'll put it at a 1.5 x or something instead of watching at normal speed but uh, but, well i guess we should let them go huh yeah probably so have we solved all of today's problems let's save some for tomorrow yeah Yeah, well uh we've got some left to to touch on for sure. I think uh, the application season's yeah. coming up here, so we're going to have to start diving into some of the states, yeah. especially if we start seeing a bunch of rule yeah. changes and all that happening. Yeah. Oh, you know, another thing that I forgot to mention. Uh, I said we took a sweepstakes winner to New Mexico. Yeah. Uh, that was oh, yeah. my one, one opportunity to divert from, from being back here. Uh, we took Sean. Great guy. What a wonderful guy. He brought his 11-year-old son, Carrig, with great oh, kid. Cool. Uh, but if someone wants to enter, all the rules for the current hunt giveaway, sweepstakes that's going on, it's the hunt with all the gear package and all kinds of stuff. Uh, if you go to rmef.org forward slash win a hunt, uh, all you got to do is sign up to be an RMEF member, uh, and you're in the draw. So, man, that's a, if you need any more reason to be a member of the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, there you go. Yeah. Well, someone, uh, when we posted the video on our YouTube channel, said, But do I have to hunt with Randy <laughs> if I win? <laughs> uh, I was going to volunteer you. I'd be like, well, no. I know you can go with Corey. No. <laughs> I, I, yeah. <laughs> my, uh, my oldest son, Isaac, who's at college, texted me this week and said, hey, would we be able to take a week in September and hunt together next year? 
And uh, we've mm-hmm. never been able to do that just because of school and athletics and everything. And I think that that's, that's what I've been waiting for. You know, it's, I, yeah. I've got to hunt a lot with my kiddos and I, I wouldn't trade it for anything, but it's always been a Friday night, Saturday deal or an after school. We just don't get to spend time in camp, which is, you know, I mean, we do a ton of stuff in the summer in camps, but in elk camp. And yeah. I can't wait for the time when I'm able to spend a week with my kiddos yes. just with them in elk camp. So as that, as that happens, uh, the possibility of of doing giveaway hunts decreases for sure (laughs) yeah well i'm on the other end of the tube you know yep my son is like uh you know when i go to camp with him all he does is harass me and give me (laughs) a hard ride and talks about you know when he was my age blah 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 so i don't know maybe maybe my curmudgeonous ways uh is isn't helpful to anyone wanting to share a camp with me. So I'll, I'll, uh, to the guy who asked the question, if if you don't want me to go on the hunt, I'll send Marcus or somebody or Michael or whatever. So, yep. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't. I don't know all of your camera guys really well, but they couldn't go wrong hunting with Marcus. That's that's yeah. a fact. <laughs> yeah. So anyhow, if you want to do that and you want a huge gear package, uh, go out to the RMEF website, rmef.org, or even if you do Google, you just type in RMEF win a hunt as separate words and poof, it takes you right to that link on the website. So, man. And I think we're running it through December 7th. Oh, I remember so right. not too much so. longer then. Yeah. Get on that. Nope. Yep. Get with the program, folks. Support yep. conservation, and maybe you'll win some. So. Yeah. Where, where do they get to go hunting? Uh, we apply them in every western state. Oh, wow. I mean, whatever state they want to apply for, we apply them there. So. Very cool. Whatever yeah. they luck out and draw and i'm guessing it's still not open to me i know last year i was very specifically told i couldn't enter no i already told them that if you win i'm not going (laughs) thanks a lot (laughs) i can't keep up (laughs) Uh, so yeah but no not open to you none of my employees none of my family too bad for all them so yeah Okay. Well, Corey, you have a great day. I think, don't you got like basketball practice? You're back coaching basketball again now? Starts today. Yeah, the season officially starts today. We have our midnight madness where we go and have practice from 5.30 to 7.30 and then have dinner. And then the gym is open with music and all sorts of basketball games until 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. So. Holy cow. Yeah. That. <laughs> Glad I don't have to go to basketball. <laughs> uh, well, it'll uh, yeah, it's it's kicking off, and from now until just about March, we'll be wow. engulfed in basketball. Well, I don't know if you'll have any time to go wolf hunting or not. Oh, I will. In fact, I'm taking the the wolf trapping class, and uh, gonna are you? I'm gonna become proficient cool. as a wolf trapper, and that's actually gonna open up a lot more time because during the morning and until basketball practice in the afternoon, I can go check traps. Whereas it just makes it hard mm-hmm. to go out and actually hunt and have to be back for that schedule. So, 
Yeah. yeah. I took the Montana course. It was a good course. <clears throat> it was really good. Yeah, in Idaho, we uh, we've got the foundation for wolf manager for wildlife management, and I know they just expanded into Montana. But in Idaho, they raised the uh, reimbursement. It used to be a thousand dollars in in some units. If you shot a wolf or trapped a wolf, they would reimburse you up to a thousand dollars for expenses, and that just got increased to twenty five hundred dollars per wolf in Idaho in uh, several wow. of the units. So, huh. yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah, sounds to me like you're you're going to have a, a a lot to do in between your basketball practices. I'm going to keep busy. Yeah. Yep. Well, I, in Montana, our governor trapped a wolf last year, and then he found out from the game and fish wardens that hey, you know, you were supposed to take that wolf trapping certification class before you went and did that. <laughs> no. Darn states that are run by the legislator. Yeah. So, uh, I don't think you'd get the exemption, though, that he did. So uh, he got an exemption, huh? Good. Yeah. You're Uh, you're you're doing it right. You're you're going to the class in advance. Oh yeah. Uh, In Montana, it's just you know, we, we everything in Montana we do is remedial. Yeah. Um, well you always say it's not it's not what you know it's who you know yeah so i should quit joking about that stuff anytime i try to make humor of that our i don't want to say our phone lines our emails light up (laughs) i'm sorry Corey. now we're gonna get a whole i was trying to make that sound sort of funny the irony of that but I'm sure I didn't do a good job. So now we're going to get a bunch of hate mail in our emails of quit picking on him. I'm not <laughs> picking on him. He made himself an easy target yeah. by going and trapping a wolf without doing what all the rest of us have done. Yep. And he should have got a ticket and just paid the fine. But no, he didn't even get a ticket. So, you know, that's fact. That's just part of something the world needs to know about, you yep. know? Membership has its privileges, and I've not been a member, obviously. <laughs> uh, oh, wow. Should we stop now before I dig us a deeper hole? Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, folks. Thanks for being here. Corey, have a great day. You too.